1: Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous Podcast. I'm your host, Jamar. Today's episode 117, and we're interviewing Trisha P. How are you this morning, Trisha?
0: I am spectacular. It's a beautiful Tuesday.
1: Yes, and I should say also good afternoon. It is one o'clock in the afternoon. I said good morning.
0: Well, it's morning for me.
1: Oh, this is true. So it's always, it's always morning somewhere, like they say.
0: <laughs> right.
1: All right, let's dive in and get started here. Tell me about your childhood and growing up.
0: Oh, wow, that's a loaded question. Okay, so here we go. I have two sides to my childhood. I have this side that looked really awesome. Um, born into a family with three siblings, you know, mom and dad. And I don't know, by the time I was four, I was, you know, reading, writing, doing arithmetic, playing chess. At five, I was playing classical piano. At six, I was already a competitive swimmer and, and just well on my way to, you know, thoroughly enjoying life. And of course I wanted to be hot on the heels of my siblings who were considerably older than I was. So I was, I think in a hurry to grow up. Um, and you know, as, as it, you know, generally speaking, I had good social circles and, um, and a lot of, you know, a lot of great things happening in my life, but in that I also, already had this weird sense inside of me that was, that, that told me I needed to be, you know, super independent, you know, like needed to handle everything on my own. And, and so at four, when, when I experienced my first sexual assault, um, I already, even though the house was filled with the grownups and, and, and this person was, um, you know, an adolescent, um, a family member of some of my parents' friends, and they were all there, I still already felt like I, I didn't, I shouldn't say anything. And, and, and so I never did.
1: Do You know why you felt that way?
0: uh, You know, as I, as I go back to some of that modeling that I grew up with, It was very much, you know, old school. I'm in my 50s. So very old school um, 70s mentality, um, leadership by especially the moms was, you know, we we leave, we, we keep, we keep our ugly at home, quiet, swept under the rug, whatever. And we always just put on our good face, you know, and 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 put on a good front. And and so that's really the thing that I can tie it to the most. But I also, you know, heard a lot from say my siblings Um, and even, even relatives, I would hear, you know, nobody wants to hear what you have to say. Um, And, and I think a lot of that, you know, again, being kind of, well, let's just put it excelled, accelerated in my intellect at, at, a young age, um, It was was hard, I think, for the adults to realize that I could carry on in a, in a, in a conversation, an adult conversation and understand and articulate and, and things like that. Um, So I was told a lot, you know, like nobody wants to hear what you have to say, you know, go, go play like a child, go, you know, go over there. So How,
1: how did that make you feel?
0: Well, very, very invisible. Um, I felt very dismissed um, a large part of my life. Um, and there was you know, definitely periods where I was being loud and I was definitely like pushing to be heard and seen um, because I didn't feel that. In fact, my dreams from as, as long as I can remember, probably four or five years old, all the way until I met my spouse at 26, my dreams were filled with. Being, you know, being standing in the middle of my driveway, my childhood driveway, screaming for help and with everybody around, but nobody could hear me and nobody could see me. So I felt very invisible, very dismissed, very, um, unvalued and, and never really felt validated in, in, in my beingness. That
1: must've been really hard.
0: It was it was so I gravitated to a lot of um, attention that was maybe unfavorable.
1: What do you mean by Uh, that? Give us an example. I
0: I sought acceptance from from older boys, right, because I was I was an athlete. Um, but also, I think it was, I think I felt safer, even though I had already been violated. I think I felt safer um, having them be friends. Like, I, I felt like I needed that protection. Um, and and they weren't as, they weren't as mean, right? They weren't as mean to me, they were nicer. Um, <clears throat> But, but also because, you know, the next sexual assault, which was technically, or not technically, it was an actual rape when I was 12, you know, they stalked me for a year after. And, and so in that stalking, it was, I just want you to be my girlfriend. And, and so that message for a young child was, okay, so this is what, you know, you, this is what is expected is, you know, if you do this, then you have a relationship. And so I was really confused because I didn't want to be sexually active, and and so it was just like a really confusing time for me.
1: Who was the person? <laughs> who was the person that assaulted you? How did you know them?
0: Uh, they were they were um, my uh, one of my best friends' boyfriends' friends, so it was an inner circle um, situation. So that was really difficult time and at about the same time my dad that, that raised me was killed in an automobile accident well a motorcycle accident and and so in there I noticed that all of the adults I was like how is everybody coping how is everybody smiling because I just wanted to be numb um and this happened a year after my parents just got back together after a separation because of his chemical addiction But what I witnessed all of the people doing was the adult doing was drinking. Everybody had like a beer in their hand and a cigarette in their hand. So at 12, I was like, I'm gonna try that. And guess what? It worked. And so alcohol became a coping mechanism for me at 12. Um and and at first primarily in traumatic or emotionally difficult spaces, um, because it allowed me to escape. Um, and and smoking allowed me to kind of get that you know little euphoric buzz, I guess.
1: Yeah.
0: And um, so yeah, you know, there's, there's there was a lot of a lot of different things, but all the while I was still managing to maintain my 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 momentum in school, um, and my momentum with my sports. And you know other things, and so, but I just because I was hiding, I was hiding the trauma and putting on that good face. Yeah. And there, then, so then I ended mm. up with multiple groups of friends. These are the friends that I drink and party with. These are the friends that you know I you know bring home to mom and dad.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: these are the friends that you know people can know, and these are the friends that people can't know. Um, and then there were you know my, my more um, just, you know, sports, you know, type, type people. So it was just, you know, had very, very distinct places and I would go where emotionally I was going to get what I needed in that time.
1: So what did you, how was um, high school stuff? Did you graduate? You did all that fun stuff?
0: Uh, I finished high school, yes. Um, I finished high school in adult school. Um, I, I also...
1: Why was that?
0: Well, so it's kind of twofold. Um, you know, I, I became a mother at a very young age, but I did so intentionally. Um, I had a really good ability of connecting with the physical body. And, and, and I knew that it was the time. And, and I can say that with all validity, it was a time because my son was the only child I was able to actually carry and, and carried a term. And, um, um, so I, I had my son two months after I turned 17. So while I was pregnant and after I, after I had him, I completed an adult school because back in those days, you got kicked out of school. If you got pregnant. Really? Yes. So at, in the third quarter of my junior year, I was asked to leave school before I was even showing because I confided in my coach. And, and so I had to start my junior year all over, which was quite annoying. Um, actually it was, must've been the tail end of the second quarter because they didn't let me do final um, midterms and I had to start. So I had to start the whole thing over in adult school. Um, yeah, that was the times back then, right? <laughs> so um, so I did finish in adult school um, independently and doing independent studies, which for me was actually quite wonderful because by the time I was in sixth grade, I had already completed 10th grade work. So when I got to high school, I was redoing things that I had already done, Um because I wanted to go to regular high school. I didn't want to skip grades and I didn't want to, you know, I wanted to be normal. And, and so I stayed, stayed the regular path. I went to, you know, junior high and, and high school regular. So it was just by the time I got there, I was like, I already did this. Um, but after I had my son, I actually lost two and, and, Had a lot of a lot of struggles with my physical body. I have a lot of autoimmune issues, and one of them causes my body to attack itself. Like if it's um, a foreign something that it needs to get rid of. What is that? uh, So I'm A negative, Rh negative, and then I have I've I've actually had multiple autoimmune disorders that keep kind of shape shifting and 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 being different things. So. my body will attack my own joints, my own you know, organs and the way that they function, um, things like that. So my body actually attacked two other children that I got pregnant with and, and, and just basically aborted them on its own. It said, no, thank you. We don't want this. And, and so, you know, I had to deal with those kinds of losses also. And, uh, so again, always coping with, with alcohol. Um, it was just my way of way of doing things.
1: How, um, did you get the alcohol and cigarettes being so young? I know you said it was around 12 was the first well, time you did it.
0: I, you, again, I grew up in the seventies and eighties, um, and, and looking mature for my age. Um, you know, if you get, got dressed if you got dressed right, you could walk in and pretty much do what you wanted. I also had a lot of older friends. So when I was 12, 13, most of my friends were juniors and seniors in high school. It was a lot easier for them. So it was never a problem. Um, but there were also a lot of places that, again, I, if I was dressed, I could just walk in. I had no trouble hanging out in there. There were some very, you know, fun beach, local bars that, I could go into, you know, with no problem on the, you know, on the weekends and just hang out because I love music. I love to dance. Um, so I always just kind of had like that older crowd of friends. And uh, again, it was just a totally different time. It wasn't so hard for us. <laughs> yeah.
1: No, no I know. I mean, I grew up in the 90s and even then you can go get cigarettes and stuff. And like you said, if you look there, right, I remember I had friends. Or if they had more facial hair and stuff like that, they were able to pull it off.
0: Yep, yeah, yeah. I was just, I was really good at, you know, I could put on makeup, I could put on high heels and a dress and just kind of pull it off. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah.
1: How was it with during school and getting high? Were you getting high during the day and drinking during the day? Or how was it, what was your use like? During that time,
0: sometimes, sometimes in high school, you know, we'd cut class. Um, I started working um, around fourteen. I had a job, and so a lot of times I would just not feel like going to school, and I'd go. It was a, um, uh, you know, just a small sandwich shop, and the owners like to go surfing. So, like, I'd go in and I'd say, "Here, go surfing. I'll take over." And then I. would would just drink beer while I was there. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Cuz they serve beer um at the sandwich shop and um uh, so I I would do that a lot. Um not every day, but a lot. And it just kind of depended on, you know, you didn't have the best high school experience. Um and, what and, happened? In,
1: was it the pregnancy that got
0: you or what else, Oh, that no, that happened? happened. I mean, by the time that happened, I was I, I was ready to leave anyway. I, you know, then I left school and it wasn't, it, you know, it wasn't an issue. Um, and my friends were my friends. But, uh, you know, most I, you know, most of most of my friends, again, when I was a freshman were you know seniors. So they graduated. So by the time I was a sophomore, like my friends were already gone. So I would want to be doing what they were doing. And uh, so it was difficult to feel like I wanted to stay at school. Because I really yeah. didn't have a lot of friends that were in my age group. Yeah, um, that must have been hard. My social circle went to a different high school than I did. Um, and I, so I was kind of separated from them after junior high. And then we didn't have any of the same social circles, so. Yeah. Um, so I mean, all in all, it wasn't necessarily a bad experience. It just wasn't the greatest experience. Um, my son's father was um again, one of the older, right? So he was already, he had already left school. He already had, you know, his full-time job and and everything. And so I, you know, I spent a lot of time um, you know, just hanging out with him and and we just kind of started, started our life at 17 and, oh gosh, he was 20 by then, um, 19 going on 20. And we just kind of started our life um, until it didn't go well, <laughs> until it didn't go well. Um, and, you know, we didn't end up making it, but we stayed really good friends for a long time um, until he passed away, actually. And we raised, you know, we, we did it, we did a pretty good job. When things weren't bad, you know, sharing um, responsibility with, you know, for our son. He did his best to do every other weekend. And, you know.
1: I was about to ask you what happened after high school. So you pretty much, like you said, started uh, the adult life, so to speak.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I had a full full career before I was 19 or by the time I was 19. Oh, wow yeah
1: so what was your use like? I mean, at what point did you say that you might have an issue to yourself?
0: There were several times I had a thirty year relationship with alcohol, and uh before before it disappeared from my life and and you know my recovery journey is a big long twenty five plus year journey because not everything in my life was ready to recover all at the same time, so in all of these things that I'm sharing with you, you know, I, I developed other, other situations, right? I had eating disorders. I was anorexic. I had body dysmorphia. Um, and, and so, you know, I had, I had to heal from that was had to be first and foremost um, after I had my son, I, you know, I really jumped into that anorexic space um, pretty, pretty heavily. Um, so I had to, you know, I had to get re-healthy, um, and I think a lot of it was because I went from, you know, a 95 pound athlete to somebody who (laughs) I gained 75 pounds with my son. It was pretty devastating at 16, 17 years old to, to gain that much weight. Um, and, and so, you know, after I kind of just, it was really important to me to try to, you know, get back to that and body image was an issue, but you know, I think I, you know, had some very significant bouts of sobriety. So I drank regularly. I wouldn't say daily. I drank regularly from 12 to 16. Then I took a break from 16 to 19. And then when I was 19, you know, I, I, you know, in, allowed alcohol back into my life. And there was a period of time where there was some some amphetamine use again, it was very helpful for the anorexia, and that was pretty short lived um it didn't it didn't work out real well for me. I didn't like paranoia. <laughs> it, it didn't serve me um but you know alcohol generally you know generally speaking did you know it, it just and but it always grew to higher levels, and so usually. Um, you know, I would have these cycles of, you know, like I can, I can handle one, I can do, you know, and I, and it would start out slowly, but it would always end up with daily drinking, um, in excess of the six pack a day. If, you know, again, in excess, because if I started the, you know, if I went out, um, you know, like my mom would have, have my, my baby, or, you know, we would just be having time out. Um, you know i would drink hard alcohol and that you know just trash me and then i would end up you know having the the drama that came with it and then you know the hangovers and then hair of the dog always worked for me right like i hated hangovers so just get up and you know drink the next day um and then i you know i did that from like about 19 to 21 dui <laughs> the, for my 21st birthday hmm. um
1: it's quite a present, and
0: yeah. Great gift, and then you know, and then I, you know, had about a bout of sobriety, and then got another DUI about three years later. Um, it was actually a day after the the uh, probation lifted from that one, so I was always able to maintain. I was always a very good, solid, strong mother. Um, I was always, you know, the I was a single mom, right? So I was a breadwinner. Had a career. I had a job, and and I always would you know, care for him and, and all of that. But in the evening after he would go to bed, you know, I always would, I'd have, a, you know, I'd have a bottle of wine, I'd have a couple of cocktails, go to sleep, wake up, do the same thing the next day. Um, and then there would be those weekends out, you know, um, where it would, you know, escalate, or I would take trips, um, you know, without him, because I was young, I was, you know, 19 to 23, you know, and, and my friends were in college, Um, and, and I was, you know, full-time parents and, and, you know, so there was, you know, there was some push pull, didn't really get accepted. I felt again, like dismissed and, and devalued by, by other parents at my son's schools, by teachers, et cetera, because I'd be walking in again, 19, 20, 21 years old, and they're all in their thirties and forties. And, you know, it was just very dismissive and um, so that was you know that was a hard space for me as well not really having a place where you fit um but i'd say mostly you know my my drinking would escalate around domestic violence i had um relationships that were significantly surrounded by domestic violence um emotional abuse and <clears throat> i also endured three other rapes in in that time period um of that you know really just kind of left me in this like need them to be numb space. Um then Friday and when I met my spouse um who is now still my spouse <laughs> we have five children between the two of us but you know uh, my 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 relationship with alcohol is very low level still diagnosable alcoholic of course you know three beers a day something like that but again, never, you know, never really, um, harming my, my duties as a parent, um, and a wife and a caretaker. But then, you know, fast forward to, you know, 29, I had a few really near death experiences. Again, my physical body was attacking itself. Um, and I ended up actually having a full hysterectomy at 29 and, um, changed me hormonally. So hormonally, now I was, you know, kind of out of whack, unbalanced and, and kind of had to, you know, learn how to, you know, move into that space. And, and we had some really traumatic scares with, with some of our kids, you know, primarily our, our oldest daughter had, um, came down with AML leukemia her freshman year of high school. And, uh, So that was, you know, a tough time. So having to be on all the time, you know, took away from my drinking time, but also in the down times, you know, when somebody else was helping out, I would, you know, I would definitely lean into, you know, escaping through alcohol and, uh, it just really got difficult and I developed, um, generalized anxiety disorder and, um, here we get to what ultimately took me out, right? <laughs> what ultimately took me out was this generalized anxiety disorder and i a general practitioner who really didn't understand um, the ramifications of prescribing benzodiazepines to a daily drinker. And um, so, you know, again, I was never really into controlled substances. You know, opiates never did anything for me. They are terrible for, um, my eating disorder and body dysmorphia because all opiates ever did was give me a headache and constipate me. So they weren't, they were of no use to me, but the benzos, you know, they worked now, I still only used it as prescribed, but I was still a day drinker. And so it quietly and gradually over time became, you know, synergistic. My, my tolerance to alcohol increased, My anxiety increased, therefore, you know, the need for my low-dose Xanax um, persisted to be, you know, from just in the morning to three times a day, and and it just grew until I said, can't do this, right? Um, It got to the point where when I would wake up in the morning, I was having physiological withdrawals. Uh, I had, I had developed a physiological addiction that I didn't understand because i had always been able to, you know, drink for three years and stop for three years or, you know, whatever it was. I was always able to get those bouts of sobriety whenever it started to get out of control. I couldn't stop. I would wake up every morning, hands were shaking. I was nauseated. I was sweating. A lot of mornings I would vomit. And the only way to, to stop that would be to you know, drink a Coors Light and Papa eggs before morning coffee. And so that got really hard to maintain, you know, um, m- most of the kids by this time had moved out um, and, and the youngest was already driving himself and, you know, basically fending for himself. So I was already in that space of not having a whole lot of responsibility for leaving the house, um, which was also hard on my psyche. Right, I didn't have I didn't have my role as a mother the way that I did, and I had you know I had quit working a long time before that, because if you have five kids, you know, finding childcare for that and having both parents working is just insane. So anyway, when I could feel my liver working, you know, I just kind of sat with my husband and said, you know. Mm. I want to stop drinking and can't, right? Like you've noticed my hands shaking. Um, you've asked me about it. And this is me kind of being genuine, right? Like I have to drink every day. It's no longer, it's no longer a choice. And, and, and I don't like it. And I mean, by this time, I've, I was already at a level where I could drink easily an 18 pack a day without anybody being able to notice the difference. Um, and some days, some days I'd make it through an entire 30 pack that was noticeable, but, um, but, you know, um, try, you know, try doing that without people knowing or realizing that it's a 30 pack that you've made it through, you know, that's, that's also difficult, right? So all of that hiding the sneaking, the, you know, not the drinking part, but the, how much it took for me to even, you know have a noticeable buzz. Like even that part was something that I had to hide because I didn't want anybody to know, like I could get through nine beers without even being altered, you know? Um, so I went to, I went to treatment, um, I, by this time, you know, so we started at four forty three at this point.
1: Say that one more time.
0: We started my story at the age of four, but by the time I went to traditional treatment, you know, medical detox, and in the thirty-day program, I was
1: forty-three. Forty-three. So, what was your first impressions when you got the detox?
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, I remember real quick uh, about me. The second I got there, I was like, "Here they go with the twelve steps and all this stuff." And God, this and God that. Um, but it it ended up teaching me a lot of stuff. You know, I don't agree with everything that's, it was written in the 30s, some stuff needs updating, but um, the one thing I find cool about AA, <clears throat> with most treatments used, is they were the first ones to ever do a self-help for drug addicts. We can't take that away from them. Bill W. Yeah. is a rock star in that regard. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I, I agree. Uh, you know, I and I, I spent my fair share of time. And you know, in AA and going to meetings, et cetera, albeit court mandated.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: you know, it still was amazing, right? It's what gave me those, you know, one, two, and three-year bouts of sobriety. Um, but uh, my first impression of detox, because I went to a medical detox, right? So I, you know, checked myself into a hospital setting, um, and and this is this. This is kind of a fun story for me to tell. I checked myself in. Um, and you know, so they hooked me up, IV, you know, they took me in through the ER, hooked me up to the IV to, you know, give me all the sodiums and all the things that my liver needed. But when I got upstairs to the admit, you know, they gave me a breathalyzer three times. And so I asked them why. And she's like, well, it keeps coming up zero. And you know, I think it's broken and I need to know what your BAC is. And I'm like, it's zero. And she, she looked at me funny. I'm like, I came sober. I, I checked in on purpose. Like I planned it. I actually scheduled it. And she, so she was like very dumbfounded. Um, And, and what actually had happened was she got my, my case confused with another case that was in the ER and they were completely tore back. Uh, <laughs> but so, you know, that was my first, you know, my first impression was, okay, wait, you know, this is obviously not the normal way to go to, go to detox is not sober, I guess. Um, because everybody was dumbfounded that I was there sober. And then, you know, I was also one of the oldest people on the floor. So, you know, I was, I was surrounded by a bunch of 20 somethings that, um, by my estimation, were all drug seeking um, um, but why wouldn't they when my, you know, my nurse, my charge nurse had a laundry list of drugs they could give me. And, and uh, so when I refused them all, it was, well, we're going to have to report that to your insurance that you refused. And I'm like, that's fine. Go ahead. I, I don't, you know, I don't want to, I, you know, I just want to detox. I don't want, I don't want to take something for that. I did agree to one um, Valium Um, The first night, just so that they could feel good about me going to sleep and not having a seizure. But my response to that was I'm not going to take more benzos. If you want to give me benzos, give me my Xanax back. Like I, I handed you a whole prescription of Xanax when I walked through the door. Like, you know, I literally just wanted to be off. I wanted to, you know, clean my body and I wanted to, you know, feel in control of my physical body again. So, you know, I watched them all walking around on CERC, Syrac- well, on the floor um, for as long as I could. And, uh, you know, as soon as my blood pressure was stabilized, I was, I, I, I left and went to my 30-day program. They wanted to keep me there for seven, 10 days. And I was like not having it. Um, so as soon as my blood pressure was stabilized, um, I, I moved on to, to another, to, to the other space.
1: In facility?
0: Yeah. I went to a, a 30 day treatment program that was uh, co-occurring dual um, eating disorders and chemical substance. Um, oh, that's great.
1: Dual diagnosis.
0: Yeah. And, and it was a really great program that unfortunately has since closed. Um, but, but, you know, we, we all, shared in, in the responsibilities as part of what, what, what led me to part of my passion, um, in, in what I do in, in my professional life now, but, you know, we, we cooked together, we cleaned together, we made our menus together. We all ate whatever we wanted to eat. Like we didn't eat necessarily the same thing all the time. Our protein might've been the same, but, you know, our sides and, you know, it was really about getting, um, getting comfortable inside the kitchen. Like I needed to learn how to open the refrigerator and not grab a beer. Like it had been a really long time. I also, you know, needed to to, you know, change my relationship with food because I, you know, really hadn't, even though I wasn't necessarily active in anorexia by at that time in my life, I certainly wasn't eating very much. Because anytime you're drinking 18 beers a day, you're not eating a lot of food. There's no room. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Right. There's just no real room for food when alcohol is, you know, that big a part of your life. Um, So, you know, we did a lot of those things together. We also were, you know, able to go and do little shopping events together, you know, like learn how to navigate grocery store without going down the alcohol aisle Um, go to the drugstore like CVS or, you know, whatever, and learn how not to, you know, seek, something off of the shelf that would give us you know an altered state of being and and it was great um we would go to local restaurant and um during happy hour and learn how to sit and be among people that are you know doing what we would normally have done but learn how to do it in a better way and and so it was a really lovely experience and in that we also did go to aa um and and you know, therapy groups and have, you know, nutritionists and um, dietitians that helped us as well as, you know, therapists.
1: That's great that you had therapy in uh, in rehab.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I didn't get to stay too long at my rehab because it broke out. It's when um, COVID broke out. It was March, 2020.
0: Oh. And
1: I got all nervous because I said to myself, I don't know what a quarantine is and I don't want to be stuck here for like six months or some crazy stuff. Like I had no idea. So I was real nervous. So I left. Yeah. I only stayed there about seven or eight days. But yeah. I mean, I was going to say that and we didn't get therapy in there, but unless I didn't stay long enough, you know what I mean? Maybe they started at mid month or something. Um, but yeah, that's great that you had, you know, I'm assuming it was probably CBT cognitive behavioral therapy.
0: CBT, DBT, yeah.
1: Bunch of stuff.
0: Some trauma work, but I, you know, I I had I've done a really good job, you know, healing from my traumas. Um I think that I can attribute that to my mother's modeling. Not that it was shove it down and hide it, but it was also very much of a if you've lived through it. My mom had a really hard childhood. Um, and so it was more of a, be thankful for what you, you know, for the fact that you woke up and it was kind of like, you know, any day you wake up without a chalk line around your body is a great day, embrace it. And, um, so, you know, I kind of grew up that way. Um, and then, you know, having to, you know, lean into my faith, um, that really helped me see that, you know, the day we're going to go is the day we're going to go, regardless of whether we get, you know. And then you know, whether we're in an accident or we, you know, just don't wake up and, you know, pass away in our sleep. Um, and I had to, you know, I kind of had to lean into that faith and that belief system when my dad was killed, when I was 12 years old, um, you know, because there was that, 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 that period that was, you know, why, why, why me, why now, when he just got, you know, clean and sober and healthy um, and actively, you know, participating, not that he wasn't an active participant in my life, um, because he was, I think that he just really, you know, spent a lot of years working in the graveyard and things like that. And I think it just really took a toll on him. And, and I think that, you know, it creeped up on him, um, I guess if you will. And, um, when he, when he, you know, got a little bit older, but, you know, he went to treatment, he went to a three month program and back then, wow, that's great. Right. Like a 90 day program. And then we came back and, you know, things were better. And we, anyway, we were on vacation and this happened. So I had to lean into that faith. So for me, it was, you know, for me, the, the trauma therapy wasn't as, as important to me as the therapeutic value of figuring out how to experience living differently and, and how to actually show up differently for myself um, as a people pleasing codependent, um, and somebody that had been a mom for the majority part of her life, right? 16 to 43, I had been responsible for other people's lives and now they all grown up and we're starting their own and, and you go, Hmm, you know, like I have to re, I have to recreate me. And so, you know, I found, I found a lot of the, the work that we did there very valuable. Um, I just didn't want to spend a lot of time ruminating and wallowing and things that I had already kind of lived through.
1: So let's talk about the final stage of sobriety for you. When did you get actually sober? Like, what's your sober date? And how'd you do it? I'd stand sober, things like that.
0: So, my sober date, the actual day that I checked myself in was March. 29, nine years ago. So that would have been 2013, 2013. Yeah. Cause I was 43. So yeah, 2013 clearly don't count my days. (laughs) Yep. I I don't count my days. I don't count my months. Um, I do know how many years it's been and, and that's just, you know, kind of that, that's that's good enough for me. Um, And, and so, you know, I think, you know, my, my, my experience with detox and stabilization, as I refer to it, that 30 day program to me was, was nothing more than stabilization. And that's not a slam because I just said how much I enjoyed everything that we did at that program and how pivotal it was for me in my life. It was a launching platform. It was definitely not the foundation that, that got me, you know, that, that brought me to where I am today. Um, and, and it can't 30 years of conditioned way of being and experiencing life was not going away in 30 days. It was not getting corrected in 30 days. It was not getting changed in 30 days. Like we have to expect that it's going to take longer. And again, I, somebody who has worked in every level of addiction treatment as a practitioner, as a trained professional, and, and I still see that. And, and I don't know, some states are different, right? Where I live, 21 to 30 days is about all anybody gets anymore. And then they get discharged to AA and therapy, which is not the end of the world, right? Like it can be enough for those that it's enough for, but it's not enough for a lot of people. Um, so for whatever reason, we're not getting longer terms of coverage. We're not getting... There are a few facilities I know here in California that are still getting um, longer approvals to have to have clients be engaged in for longer periods. Because guess what? Post-acute withdrawal is a real thing. It truly comes and goes in, in cycles, off and on for the first two years of sobriety. Um, in my nine years, because if I go back to what, what kept me sober, I, when I was discharged, I, you know, went to a few meetings, we didn't have AA in my city, um, there was none, zero, um, so I had to go, you know, a little bit over, and it just wasn't a good fit, um, it wasn't, you know, just, it just wasn't the same, And and <clears throat> so, you know, I joined a women's group, I was the only addict in there, um, but everybody else had their fair share of other issues. Um, And and so that was that was my version for me was to, you know, to have that that support group that that we engaged in each other's lives and got together once a week, but chatted throughout the week. Um, And it was therapist Ram. Um, But I went to school. I went to school because I wanted to know everything that I could know possibly about what and how it happened to me, because there I was a highly functioning, you know, alcohol for a really long time, who could always stop whenever it got out of control. Right. Like I, I needed to know how did this, you know, develop into this physiological, I can't stop. So of course my first class was the physiological effects of drugs and alcohol on the body which is where I learned that it was the combo of the Xanax and the alcohol that created the physiological issue that I was having. Of course, and myself, because I had to open them and actually put them in my mouth. And, and so I had to take some responsibility there, but you know, I went to school and, uh, and learned a lot of things. So, and, and that was about post-acute withdrawal. And so in my, in my time working with other people, I've, I've had that ability to teach them about it and see just in knowing when those cycles are happening and what they look like and feel like for each person. Cause it's very individual. It's very different for each person, but being able to lean into that and knowing how to sit in and move through it. Um, it's really helpful because it's truly what I see is as the largest contributing factor to relapse um, and difficulty in long-term sobriety. Yeah. And I think I answered your question. Sorry, I can go off on little spirals uh, very easily. <laughs> oh, no,
1: no, no. Don't worry about it. I'm the same way people call it my tangents. Once you get me going on one thing, my mind then goes, well, what about this and that and all that fun mm-hmm. stuff.
0: I call so- them sermons.
1: My last question for you that I usually ask everybody is, do you have any advice for people listening and people watching?
0: Oh, I do. Okay. Is everybody ready? I'm ready. Okay. Do whatever you have to do. Get a coach, whatever it is, right? A trained professional that can help you do these things. And if you need help, let me know. I'm happy to answer your questions. It doesn't have to be me. I'm not the right person for everybody. But you have to, have to, have to do these things. You must dive in and get to know yourself. And I mean, truly get to know yourself at a level that you've never done before. And it's not, doesn't have to be traumatizing. There are simple surveys and assessments that you can do on your own that will, that will give you insight into the six categories of whole health that will let you know um, and help you get to know yourself. So that's number one. Then you need to completely redefine your, what, what life balance means to you. And if you define life balance as home, work, and health, you need to drastically expand that. There are eight primary categories that create um, life balance, and there are six subcategories that go into your health. And, and so you need to define these categories for you. Don't let some book. Or somebody else's definition of spirituality define spirituality for you in your life balance. I'm going to try to do this, you know, as quickly as I possibly can. From there, you have to have go to very practical skill sets and tactics. These are psychological skill sets and tactics that you can that you can practically apply in your life. It's very important that you learn that practical application or you're going to end up in talk therapy for five years and wonder why you're not making any headway, right? So we have to learn very effective centering and grounding tactics. This means I can get centered and grounded in the spur of the moment, no matter what I'm doing, without relying on meditation, yoga, or the like. Because here's the deal. When you're driving down the freeway and somebody cuts you off, you can't drop into downward dog or meditation, You've got to have something that is going to center you and ground you. Then you've got to really work on that knee-jerk impulsivity. Uh, It is important that you can change this part of you. That's that access to the fight or flight. We need new ways of doing this. So um, we need to learn whatever it is that we need to learn. Of course, I know plenty of uh, tactics that you can utilize to become responsive in all things that we do, all things, literally everything. You have to be responsive, not reactive. Um, then there's a whole bunch of other things, but I want you to really know about what you rely on to bring you peace, joy, comfort, really value, validity, and worthiness cannot come from outside of you. We have spent enough time as addicts relying on something else, right? Alcohol, pills, whatever, right? Illicit drugs, um, food, shopping, whatever it is, right? Whatever it is for you, even if it's the gym, if you're relying on it to bring you peace, joy, comfort, relief, value, validity, and worthiness, we got some work to do. Um, And then we got to have distress tolerance. Distress tolerance and emotion regulation are important, important factors in creating the level of emotional intelligence that you need, that you didn't know that you need, but need to be successful long-term because we have to condition new ways of being and we have to do so in a lifelong manageable and maintainable fashion because if it's not, we're going to continue this cycle. That means you have to get dedicated to yourself to be working on this at least for a solid 12 months in reconditioning of how you are experiencing living how you are experiencing your environment, how you want to see yourself, how you want to be received by others, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's not a hard process, but you do have to be dedicated. And then I always say, add, edit, delete, change, shift, morph, make it your own. There is no one program, one cookie cutter thing that will work for everybody. And so wherever you are, whatever it is you're engaged in, just know that you can add, edit, delete, change, shift, morph it, incorporate it into your life to serve you don't try to fit your life into somebody else's bubble that's it that's what i got for you
1: that's what you got for me no this is a i like what we've talked about today how do you feel
0: i feel amazing
1: good i'm glad to hear that so did you have anything else you want to add in
0: no i mean literally i'm an open book um well, Anybody? didn't you
1: have, don't you have a podcast or something that you have going on?
0: I do right now. It's a, a, a weekly live. It's okay. on my, it's, it, it, airs on my business Facebook page, which is turning leaves recovery backslash 2015, something like that.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: Um, and it airs on Facebook live every Wednesday at noon. We are going to be shifting this to podcast form, but you can also find it on the Turning Leafs Recovery YouTube page, which is probably an easier place to find it and watch all episodes there. Um, and if you have trouble, you can just always just reach out to me, Trisha Peridot or Turning Leafs Recovery. Um, and I'll connect you with with any of the free resources that I have available.
1: Awesome. And the last thing real quick, how do they reach out to you? Is it, you want? Are-
0: easy just go to turning leaves l-e-a-v-e-s recovery.com you can get um a free whole health survey um or you can just contact me or if you're on social media instagram it's i am trisha Perito. um that's hard just go to the website because my yeah, phone number is posted my website my phone number is there that's my cell phone just send me a text i don't care
1: awesome <laughs> Awesome. That sounds great. I love what you're doing. I love the interview today. And uh, I guess that's all we got. So for everybody watching and listening, if you like what you heard and saw, go below and give us a like Also, subscribe to the channel. You'll see when we update and add new videos. You can also find us on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. So hopefully you'll check us out on one of those platforms, get connected. And that's all we have today. So until next time.